Abraham is a believing man. He believes that God is speaking to him, and he believes God's promises to him. He knows that God is righteous and just, but can he trust God? God has made promises that have not come to pass. Chapter 16, verse 1 opens with a lament. Abram's wife, Sarai, had borne him no children, even though their names do not change until chapter 17 when God brings him into covenant, I will be using the more familiar Sarah and Abraham throughout this lecture. We learn that 10 years have passed since God made the covenant with Abraham, promising that his own offspring would inherit the land of the Amorites. A man of lesser faith might have thought that God had abandoned him or that the promises were not God-given. But Abraham is a man of such overwhelming faith that he believes in God's promises and God's covenant. That's a huge leap of faith because Abraham's cultural knowledge of God must have been limited. This is an important point in reading any of the Abraham material because he is a very early monotheistic person. He's following the lead of an unseen, solitary God to whom he has vowed loyalty in a time and place where idols and polytheism were the norm. As author Bruce Filer notes in Awe and Italics in his book, Abraham, he doesn't believe in God. He believes God. As does Sarah, Abraham's wife, to whom God has not spoken. In fact, Sarah's faith in God's promise of a son is so deep that she suggests that Abraham take action that he consider having a child with her maidservant, Hagar. This is quite a creative response to a long-awaited event. Abraham and Sarah believe that God's promise of a son will come to pass. They are also members of a culture in which offspring and heir have very different meanings socially and legally. We know that Abraham intended to make his servant Eleazar his heir in chapter 15. So a tribal leader like Abraham had the power to give status and wealth to a servant based on his or her loyalty. The same would have been true of having a child with Hagar. We know a bit about Hagar's background. She was Egyptian, so it's possible that she was part of Sarah's bride price from Pharaoh. In Genesis 12, we learn that Abraham kept the male and female slaves that he was given when Pharaoh took Sarah into his house, subsequently learning that Abraham and Sarah were married and expelling them from Egypt. She's also an outsider. Even her name underscores her status as an alien for Hagar may mean stranger. Importantly, her status as a slave may have been privileged in the household hierarchy if she were skilled in some way. In other words, being a slave would not have put her at the bottom of the social ladder in the household. She may have been a very valuable gift from Pharaoh and an excellent choice to be the mother of Abraham's son. Each time Sarah or Abraham do something that makes the modern reader cringe, we need to remember that they were, after all, people of their time. A child born of Hagar would be Abraham's offspring, his son. We also know that Abraham had been successfully created, created in earlier chapters of Genesis. He, Sarah, and his household 
survived and prospered in dire situations in which his quick thinking and knowledge of other cultures were the critical elements. Abraham knows that God is guiding his life. As readers, however, we're not certain that God is giving Abraham every nuanced detail needed to survive journeys and captivity and war. If Abraham and Sarah appear to be on their own in solving the dilemma of the long-promised son, then this would be consistent with other decisions they have made. Noted Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes that the Ishmael presence indicates, on the one hand, that God may not be focused entirely on a child born of Abraham and Sarah. On the other hand, the manner of his conception may be an indication that Abraham and Sarah do not trust God's promise. God knows that Abraham desires a son and Hagar becomes pregnant. But rather than rejoicing, something goes wrong in the household. It's clear that Abraham can have children, specifically a son. In the story, however, Sarah is not happy, even though she's the one who suggested that Hagar go to Abraham. Remember that Hagar is a stranger to the household and a stranger to the culture represented by the semi-nomadic household headed by Abraham. Perhaps Hagar assumed that she would have equal footing and status with Sarah once she became pregnant. We just don't know. What's clear from scripture, though, is that her flight to the wilderness brought her into direct contact with the messenger of the Lord, whom she recognized as divine. She returns to the household in spite of the rather glum prophecy of the Lord's messenger in chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, and gives birth to Abraham's child. But why was Abraham so blunt in his treatment of Hagar, reminding Sarah that, your maid is in your power. Do to her what you regard as right. There may be two issues here. First, Abraham is asserting the hierarchy of the household, reminding Sarah that she is his wife and the more powerful woman. In spite of Hagar's pregnancy, Abraham reminds Sarah that her place in the household is secure, that she will not be usurped by Hagar when the child is born. Secondly, Abraham is something of a CEO in this tribe. Just as the CEO of a large corporation trusts mid-level managers to run the day-to-day -day operations, Abraham likely expected that those overseeing slaves, servants, and lower-level members of the group to do the same. Abraham himself is handing down a right and just decision that allows the household to continue operating successfully. However, Sarah was in real danger of losing her position in the household if Abraham casts her off as a barren woman, an action that would have been perfectly in keeping with the law and custom of the time. Abraham, then, is also showing compassion to Sarah by telling her the position was safe. Hagar needed to rethink her importance to Abraham and Sarah. As chapter 17 begins, we find that 13 years have passed. Sarah has not yet conceived, and it's possible that Ishmael, born when Abraham was 86, is the son promised to him by God. 
Through 14 verses, God makes Abraham sweeping promises about the host of nations he will father, the kings that will stem from him in chapter 17, verse 6. God's covenant to be Abraham's God and the God of his descendants, to give them this land of Canaan is breathtaking. And still, these descendants may all stem from Ishmael for all he knows at this point. Then, A bombshell in chapter 17, verse 16. Sarah will have a son. This is a delightful moment in scripture because Abraham laughs. This man who has been so steadfastly devoted to his God laughs even as he prostrates himself in homage. This is a moment of such human warmth and emotion that anyone reading scripture could easily be laughing also. Abraham is a very human person who has observed the natural world for many years as it played out in his herds and among the many people for whom he is responsible. How could Sarah possibly conceive and bear a child at her advanced age? Is Abraham experiencing a failure of faith? Brueggemann characterizes Abraham's laugh as mocking, a harsh response to a loving God who has provided so well for Abraham and his household? Or was it a thoughtless, human response to a promise that seemed redundant? He had a son, Ishmael. Sarah was ancient, far beyond any childbearing years. Perhaps it was a moment in which Abraham was overwhelmed by the unexpected promise in the face of his human experience. Abraham asks that Ishmael live in your favor in verse 18, suggesting that he feared that his firstborn son might be removed from the household or the clan in some fashion. We've already seen that Sarah has control of the household servants in chapter 16, verse 6, and that she's demonstrated animosity toward Hagar. But Abraham seems comforted by the Lord's promise. He returns to his household and proceeds with his part of the covenant, the circumcisions. Meanwhile, Sarah is not yet pregnant. As chapter 18 opens, Abraham and Sarah seem to be quietly at home in their tents near the Terebinth of Mamre, a Bronze Age site noted for its fair or caravanserai. Having visitors approach their camp would not have been unusual, And the mitzvah of hospitality would demand that Abraham welcome these strangers and see to their needs, particularly food and drink. Once again, the promise of a son is made, but this time there's a timetable. Sarah will have a son by this time next year. And Sarah laughs. Perhaps she didn't giggle out loud, But the prediction does strain credulity, particularly as these promises are being made to Abraham about a woman presumably in her 80s. Remember that Sarah is a third party to this and other conversations about the long-promised son as well as to all of the covenant-making. But something strikes fear into her heart when she answers the visitor, denying her laughter another very human reaction. The reader can only feel empathy for Sarah. Like Sarah, we're not always aware that we are hearing directly from God. We have to trust that his word will play out in our lives according to the covenant we've been given. 
And sometimes we may also be tempted to laugh when things appear to be humanly impossible. As the messengers leave, Abraham is left alone in conversation with the Lord, who allows himself to be persuaded against destroying everyone in Sodom. The shift in topic from the prediction of a son for Abraham and Sarah, fabulous news that must have gladdened Abraham's heart, to the Lord's announcement that he means to destroy Sodom, where Abraham's nephew lives with his family, must have been horrifying. What are Abraham's options? He engages in a negotiation with the Lord, praising his just nature while arguing in favor of protecting the innocent. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, chief rabbi of England, wrote that the passages in the Hebrew Bible where humans argue with God have no parallel. Sachs notes that God is inviting Abraham to argue with him by saying, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? In chapter 18, verse 17, testing Abraham's devotion to justice. The words right and just in the Lord's process of self-questioning, set up this notion. If Abraham is going to direct his children and his household in the future to keep the way of the Lord, verse 19, then it might be important for God to make certain that Abraham's view of justice to himself is quite clear. In other words, Abraham is made to clarify to himself through discussion with the Lord what he considers to be a just situation. As the messengers from heaven enter Sodom, they find a just man immediately, Lot. Pressured to accept the same hospitality from Lot that they accepted from Abraham, they are faced with the unruly, unjust townspeople who demand that the visitors be turned out from under Lot's protection for the immoral amusement of his neighbors. Horrifying as the townspeople's demands may be, they illustrate the depths of godlessness into which the population of Sodom have descended. If the punishment should fit the crime, then the description of the city would be justice served. However, what was Lot doing bargaining his daughters for the safety of the visitors? He was being righteous. When he extended the hospitality of his household to the strangers, he also extended his protection to them. Sending his daughters out to the crowd would have been the lesser sin in Lot's world. His household would have protected the visitors, even at some cost to themselves, just as members of the household would have sustained injury if they needed to fight off any townspeople who invaded the home. We find out in chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, that the strangers were well equipped to take care of themselves when they brought Lot back into the house safely and struck the townspeople with a blinding light. But Lot had behaved well. And Lot, with his immediate family only, was dragged to safety by those same visitors. Lot, the immigrant, as an outsider, was the one innocent party, but his family did not number 10. Sodom is destroyed. In verses 28 and 29, as Abraham is looking down on the destruction of the plains, the reader is assured that God's hand guided Lot and his daughters to safety mindful of Abraham. 
Underscoring the importance of having children, particularly sons, the daughters seduce Lot and bear children. Again, keep in mind that these were people of their time and that there is a narrative consistency in the Abraham story. Abraham is promised offspring. Sarah has no children yet. This is an enduring and compelling theme that drives the action. Lot's daughters argue that there is not a man in the land to have intercourse with us, as is the custom everywhere, in chapter 19, verse 31. The point was to have a child. Would they have done the same if their mother had not been turned into a pillar of salt? The answer may lie in chapter 20, where we find Abraham on the move again and Sarah in danger again. Abimelech finds out that Sarah is married after he has taken her, thinking that she is Abraham's sister. Abraham explains that she is his half-sister. However, the greater issue is her married status, which would have brought such great guilt on Abimelech and his kingdom. The concepts of innocence and justice appear here as well. In chapter 20, verse 4, Abimelech asks God, Would you kill an innocent man? Echoing the argument that Abraham made to God before Sodom was destroyed. It turns out that Abraham is innocent of lying, Abimelech is innocent of misbehaving with Abraham's wife, and Sarah is innocent of everything as she is simply following the commands of the man who is her earthly lord and master. What's striking here is that Abimelech recognizes the Lord and his court officials believe the story and, presumably, believe in God's power and justice. While Abraham made a decision to hide his marital status in a strange land with unknown rulers based on his previous experience in Egypt and his knowledge of customs in other kingdoms, his decision had ramifications for the entire kingdom. No children were conceived or born while Sarah was being held by Abimelech. The reward? Abimelech's wife and maidservants could bear children. As chapter 20 closes, Sarah is still not pregnant, but we're left with a very clear impression that Abraham is still, and always, faithful to the Lord, even when he's being creative in his responses to his surroundings. Sarah is a willing partner, following Abraham as the tribe moves from one place to another, and fulfilling his wishes that she provide hospitality for visitors as his wife and cover as his sister when in hostile territory. Abraham is so very human. He is a man of his time, but a man who represents all of our attempts and failures in doing God's work. God is always with Abraham, just as he is always with us.